Hi, welcome to Come Follow Me with Bree, episode 43, Seen and Known. I am so happy to be here recording this episode. I was just thinking last night as I was tweaking things and doing my final preparations that this is such a blessing and to be able to have something I'm accountable for that I have to prepare each week with my personal struggles of struggling to be accountable to myself, I want you guys to know how much preparing for you that are listening helps me in my life. You are a blessing. By listening, you are a blessing because you are keeping me accountable and keeping me on the right track. And I think when Heavenly Father prompted me to start this, he knew that that's how I work, that I do better when I'm accountable to other people. So Thank you for being the people that I feel accountable to. And along with that goes that I feel accountable to God because I feel like he has asked me to do this, asked me to be consistent and to prepare in advance. And there are just so many blessings that are coming to me through preparing and doing as I felt prompted to do. So thank you to you. Thank you to Heavenly Father. It's just so great. And especially thank you for sharing I say this, I've been saying this for the last couple of weeks, but I can really tell that you guys are sharing and it means so much to me. It really motivates me to keep going. It motivates me to know that hopefully this is helping someone and reaching someone who needs to hear what I have to say. So thank you. Please keep sharing. If you'd like to get to know me personally better, follow me on Instagram. My Instagram handle is comefollowme underscore with Bree, and I'd love to see you there. All right, let's get started with this week's section. And I say section because we only have one. And usually when we have a heavier doctrinal week, it's one section or maybe one or two. And then when we have multiple sections, it's more historical and a little less heavy on doctrine itself. All right. This section is the documented account of a vision shown to Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon while they were translating the Bible in John chapter five. Most of the Doctrine and Covenants is revelation, not vision. So this is a pretty incredible section to imagine what this vision must have really looked like. And actually, it's not one vision. It's a series of six visions. Through their studies and translation, it had become clear to them that the traditional idea of heaven and hell didn't quite make sense to them anymore. And this section is the first explanation of the entirety of the plan of salvation and what that looked like before we came here and what it will look like after this life. This was a mind-blowing doctrinal moment in the history of the church. This caused quite a stir, as you can imagine. People had lived their entire lives with the understanding of a very black and white situation, heaven and hell, and this vision busted that wide open. And I think for the most part, that was accepted well and with amazement and awe. But there were also people who really struggled with changing up the idea of what the afterlife looked like in their mind. So big moment in the history of the church. One of the coolest things that I am coming to appreciate about the Doctrine and Covenants is that we are seeing the growth into the fullness of times. There are all kinds of phrases in the scriptures like line upon line and milk before meat. The doctrine of the church as we know it was not revealed all at once, and it wasn't revealed without method and pattern. Take this section, for example. This vision was given because of pondering and asking questions. And we see this pattern over and over again as the fullness of the gospel is revealed. 
Think about how the church began. Joseph Smith went into the woods to pray and ask questions. And I think it's important that as we read the Doctrine and Covenants, we recognize this pattern because this is a pattern that we can implement in our lives. When things don't make sense to us, we need to be always thinking of this humble pattern, asking with a sincere heart, with pure intent, having faith in Christ, and the Lord is willing to reveal his mysteries to us in his own due time. And that's where the faith in Christ part comes. Trust that he is giving you exactly as much information as you are ready for. And if the answer isn't coming to you yet, maybe there are other things that you need to learn first. And in my experience, a lot of times that thing that I need to learn is to have stronger faith, have more complete faith. So if you're not getting all the answers that you want right now, instead of doubting God and if the answers even exist, doubt yourself. Not in a self-depreciating way, but in a humble, sincere way. Doubt if you are ready, if you have the qualifying faith to receive that knowledge. Take it as a challenge to grow. Acknowledge that he knows all things. And if he thinks you're not ready yet for what you're asking for, you're quite simply not. Figure out where you need to grow instead of foolishly deciding that God must be wrong or must not exist. Ask yourself, do you need to be asking with more faith? Do you have other areas of the gospel knowledge that need to grow first? Do you have a sin or two that might be getting in the way of your worthiness to have the spirit and receive revelation? As President Uchtdorf has told us, doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. And I'd like to add, doubt yourself before you doubt God. Because as we are told in the section starting in verse 2, great is his wisdom, marvelous are his ways, and the extent of his doings none can find out. His purposes fail not, neither are there any who can stay his hand. From eternity to eternity, he is the same and his years never fail. As I read this section, I was yet again struck with the perfection of it all. One of the most common things that I say in my prayers is, I am so thankful for the clarity that the knowledge of the gospel gives me. If you have grown up in the church, I think it's easy to take the amazing knowledge we have for granted. I often think about how much more upsetting the circumstances in the world would be to me without a knowledge of the gospel. But because I have the gospel, I know why I am here. I know why everyone on the earth is here. I know my purpose on earth. I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. And the peace of that knowledge and honoring that knowledge through my actions brings peace that cannot be replaced by any amount of meditation or self-compassion or self-affirmations. Now, don't get me wrong. I love and do both of those things. I have my children do those things. But those things by themselves are not the source of peace. The knowledge of the gospel, this great plan of happiness that we're going to talk about, and the Savior. That is the true source of peace. There are certainly awesome mental health tools like affirmations, like meditation, that are extremely helpful and really healthy for our mental health. But don't mistake them as sources of peace because they are not. Don't you find it intriguing? I know I notice all the time the replacement of religion for things like that. And I think it's because our spirits crave the quality of peace that only the Savior can bring. But unfortunately, without the Savior, 
you can only get a cheap imitation of that. True and lasting peace must include the Savior and the plan of our Father in heaven. Marvin J. Ashton said, Certainly peace is the opposite of fear. Peace is a blessing that comes to those who trust in God. It is established through individual righteousness. True personal peace comes through an eternal vigilance and constant righteous efforts. No man can be at peace who is untrue to his better self. No man can have lasting peace who is living a lie. Peace can never come to the transgressor of the law. Commitment to God's laws is the basis for peace. Peace is something we earn. It is not a gift. Rather, it is a possession earned by those who love God and work to achieve the blessings of peace. It is not a written document. It is something that must come from within. We live in such an amazing time. Listen to how the Lord describes us in this time. In verse 7 of this section. And to them I will reveal all mysteries, yea, all the hidden mysteries of my kingdom from days of old and for ages to come. Will I make known unto them the good pleasure of my will concerning all things pertaining to my kingdom? Yea, even the wonders of eternity shall they know, and things to come will I show them, even the things of many generations. And their wisdom shall be great, and their understanding reach to heaven. And before them the wisdom of the wise shall perish, and the understanding of the prudent shall come to naught. For by my spirit will I enlighten them, and by my power will I make known unto them the secrets of my will, yea, even those things which eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor yet entered into the heart of man. I love that part that says, For by my spirit will I enlighten them, and by my power will I make known unto them the secrets of my will. I think that emphasizes the importance of personal revelation. We will not understand the best that we're able to here on earth, if we don't have the spirit of revelation with us. Something that, as I've done these episodes, that I've been thinking about is, how do you explain, how do I explain what it feels like to have the mysteries of God unfolded? And obviously, it's not like I am having prophetic levels of of revelation, but I have had personal revelation, and I do know what that feels like. And sometimes I'm more in tune with the spirit than others, And that revelation comes more freely. And when it comes to me, especially when I'm reading the scriptures and I have questions and I don't quite understand something, when I am in tune with the spirit, when my, when my intent is, is humble and sincere, it's almost like I have a question that my brain does not know. And then it's like my mind is expanded and my mind seems to all of a sudden understand what the why of something or the what of something or whatever it is. It's almost like an internal voice within me that's helping my mind all of a sudden grasp the concept or understand what's going on or know the answer to the question without anything actually changing in myself. It's something bigger than me helping me understand. And fortunately, We know what that is. That's the spirit. The spirit quickeneth our understanding. And every time it happens to me, I should be better about writing it down. I'm just amazed because I know, I know it didn't come from me. It does not feel the same as when my mind works it out on my own. It is the spirit giving me personal revelation. And I know that that is true.
This section is one of those sections where that promise given to us that we will be enlightened, that we will have the mysteries of God revealed to us, that our wisdom shall be great. This section fulfills that promise. We are enlightened. And I think that there is a surface level reading of this, of this section that can happen. But when we accompany that with the spirit of revelation, with the Holy Ghost, our minds can be expanded. And it is truly an amazing section. It outlines the premortal existence and what will happen to us after we die. It gives us blessings promised if we live the commandments and endure to the end. And as always in the Doctrine and Covenants, it reminds us who is in charge and whose plan this is. In verse 12, Joseph says, By the power of the Spirit, our eyes were opened and our understandings were enlightened so as to see and understand the things of God. What I notice here is that there's no self-inflation here. Joseph quickly acknowledges that it was by the power of the Spirit that they were able to understand and see these things. First, they see a vision of the Savior. Verse 20, And we beheld the glory of the Son on the right hand of the Father, and received His fullness, and saw the holy angels and them who are sanctified before His throne, worshiping God and the Lamb, who worship Him forever and ever. And now, after the many testimonies which have been given of Him, this is the testimony, last of all, which we give of Him, that He lives. For we saw Him even on the right hand of God, and we heard the voice bearing record that He is the only begotten of the Father, that by Him and through Him and of Him the worlds are and were created, and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters unto God. They then see the premortal existence where Lucifer rebelled. Verse 25. And this we saw also and bear record that an angel of God who was in authority in the presence of God, who rebelled against the only begotten son whom the father loved and who was in the bosom of the father, was thrust down from the presence of God and the son and was called perdition for the heavens wept over him. He was Lucifer, a son of the morning. And we beheld and lo, he is fallen, is fallen even a son of the morning. So Lucifer was an angel of God who had authority and clearly he was loved. I wonder what Lucifer was like before he got to that point of rebellion. If he was in a position of authority, he must have been valued and contributing and a loved spirit child of Heavenly Father. And as I say that, it makes me think, does Heavenly Father still love him? Does he still feel sadness after so much wrongdoing toward all of his other children? Does he still mourn the loss of Lucifer, his son? And I think the answer is yes. I'm sure you all have heard the saying that the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. And it sure doesn't sound like Heavenly Father was indifferent, or that we in the premortal existence were indifferent to this great tragic fall of our brother Lucifer. The heavens wept, we wept, for the fall of our brother Lucifer and also for the fall of the third of our brothers and sisters who followed him. In the Bible dictionary, it says that Lucifer literally means the shining one, also light bringer or son of the morning. Isn't it interesting that that's what Satan's original title meant? The Savior is the light of the world. Alma thirty-two thirty-five. Whatsoever is light is good. When we are given greater understanding, we are told that it means to be enlightened. So it makes so much sense to me when I read about the qualifications to become a son of perdition. This loved brother of ours 
was thereafter called perdition. His followers, who were cast out of heaven with him, never receiving bodies, were thereafter called the sons of perdition. Both Lucifer and his followers denied the knowledge they had that the Lord is God in open rebellion. They denied the greatest light, denied truth, which is light. And the spirit who was called perdition himself literally held the title previous, the shining one, light bringer, son of the morning. He denied to the greatest degree possible his light and knowledge. The spirits who followed him lived with our father in heaven, had firsthand knowledge of his reality, and yet somehow denied that light and knowledge. So we've talked about what Satan did in the pre-mortal world, and what is he doing now? Verse 29, Wherefore he maketh war with the saints of God, and encompasses them round about. What does it mean that he maketh war with us? Helaman 7.16, Yea, how could you have given way to the enticing of him who is seeking to hurl away your souls down to everlasting misery and endless woe? He is seeking to hurl away your soul down to everlasting misery and endless woe. In this section, we learn that becoming a son of perdition is also possible for those of us who chose to come to earth and follow his plan. So we know that Satan and his followers denied the greatest light. So what does that mean for those here on earth? Who would qualify to even be able to accomplish a sin like that? You would have to have a whole lot of light in the first place. Verse 31, Thus saith the Lord concerning all those who know my power and have been made partakers thereof and suffered themselves through the power of the devil to be overcome and to deny the truth and defy my power. They are they who are the sons of perdition, of whom I say it had been better for them to have never been born. For they are vessels of wrath, doomed to suffer the wrath of God with the devil and his angels in eternity, concerning whom I have said there is no forgiveness in this world nor in the world to come. Having denied the Holy Spirit after having received it, and having denied the only begotten Son of the Father, having crucified him unto themselves and put him to an open shame. These are they who will go away into the lake of fire and brimstone with the devil and his angels, and the only ones on whom the second death shall have any power. Yea, verily, the only ones who shall not be redeemed in the due time of the Lord after the sufferings of his wrath. The key word in these scriptures to me is suffered themselves. Suffered themselves through the power of the devil to be overcome. Joseph Smith said, All beings who have bodies have power over those who do not, which includes the devil. We have power over the devil. The devil has no power over us only as we permit him. The moment we revolt at anything which comes from God, the devil takes power. The entire plan of our Heavenly Father centralizes around agency. We can use our agency to maintain power over our own spirit's ability to grow, or we can use our agency to give away that power, inhibiting our spirit's ability to grow. Listen to this quote from Spencer W. Kimball in his book, Miracle of Forgiveness. Those who followed Lucifer in his rebellion in the pre-mortal life, and those who in mortality sin against the Holy Ghost are sons of perdition. In the realms of perdition, or the kingdom of darkness, where there is no light, Satan and the unembodied spirits of the pre-existent shall dwell together with those who in mortality retrogress to the level of perdition. They have sunk so low as to have lost the inclinations and ability to repent. Consequently, the gospel plan is useless to them as an agent of growth and development. These deny the Son and the gospel of repentance and thus lose the power to repent. 
Verse 44, Wherefore he saves all except them. They shall go away into everlasting punishment, which is endless punishment, which is eternal punishment, to reign with the devil and his angels in eternity, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched, which is their torment. And the end thereof, neither the place thereof, nor their torment, no man knows. Neither was it revealed, neither is, neither will be revealed unto man, except to them who are made partakers thereof. Nevertheless, I, the Lord, show it by vision unto many, but straightway shut it up again. Wherefore the end, the width, the height, the depth, and the misery thereof, they understand not, neither any man except those who are ordained unto this condemnation. Think about that last verse. No one will ever understand fully the condition of people who end up like this. Only those who experience it will understand. This topic is always interesting for me to think about because inevitably your mind starts to wander to people your brain surely thinks must be evil enough to not qualify for any degree of glory. One example that Joseph F. Smith wrote about was Judas Iscariot. He said that Judas did partake of all this knowledge, that these great truths had been revealed to him, that he had received the Holy Ghost by the gift of God, and was therefore qualified to commit the unpardonable sin is not at all clear to me. To my mind, it strongly appears that not one of the disciples possessed sufficient light, knowledge, nor wisdom at the time of the crucifixion for either exaltation nor condemnation, for it was afterward that their minds were opened to understand the scriptures, and that they were endowed with power from on high, without which they were only children in knowledge in comparison to what they afterwards became under the influence of the Spirit. So that's really interesting to think about even the disciples Before the crucifixion, during the crucifixion, it's theorized by Joseph S. Smith here that even they didn't have enough light to qualify for this sin. Like I always tell my kids, it's never our job to judge where someone is going to end up because we quite simply don't know. And also, the Lord has said judgment is mine. And so we should never try to claim that we know anything about where someone's going to end up. Next, we learn about those who will come forth in the resurrection of the just. In order to qualify for that resurrection, they must have received the testimony of Jesus, believed on his name, be baptized by immersion, keep the commandments, receive the Holy Ghost, overcome by faith, and be sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, which the Father sheds forth upon all those who were just and true. What is the Holy Spirit of promise? Joseph Fielding Smith said, The Holy Spirit of promise is the Holy Ghost who places the stamp of approval upon every ordinance, baptism, confirmation, ordination, marriage. The promise is that the blessings will be received through faithfulness. If a person violates a covenant, whether it be a baptism, ordination, marriage, or anything else, the Spirit withdraws the stamp of approval and the blessings will not be received. For those who qualify for this, what are the blessings listed in this section? Bear with me, it's a little long, but so amazing to read all in one place. We are washed and cleansed from all our sins. Receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Receive the Holy Ghost of promise, meaning the Holy Ghost stamp of approval, meaning that we receive all of the blessings promised through the covenants that we make. We will be given all things. We will receive the fullness of His glory. We will be God's, even the sons and daughters of God. All things will be ours, whether in life or death, or things present or things to come. All are ours and they are Christ's, and Christ is God's. 
We will overcome all things. We will dwell in the presence of God. We will accompany the Savior when he comes in the clouds of heaven to reign over the earth. We will take part in the first resurrection. We will come onto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly place, the holiest of all. Our names will be written in heaven. We are made perfect through Christ. Our bodies will be made celestial, just like the Savior and our Heavenly Father. Joseph Fielding Smith said, The Father has promised through the Son that all that he has shall be given to those who are obedient to his commandments. They shall increase in knowledge, wisdom, and power, going from grace to grace until the fullness of the perfect day shall burst upon them. Additionally, Bruce R. McConkie said, A joint heir is one who inherits equally with all other heirs, including Christ, who is the Son. Each joint heir has an equal and an undivided portion of the whole of everything. If one knows all things, so do all the others. If one has all power, so do all those who inherit jointly with him. If the universe belongs to one, so it does equally to the total of all upon whom the joint inheritances are bestowed. Okay, I know that was a lot of quotes and reading, but this part of the gospel is just so cool. But I also think because it's so unimaginable, it's hard to wrap our minds around. I think kind of like we talked about how only those who actually experience being cast out as a son of perdition can understand what that's really like. I think the same probably applies to exaltation. I don't think that we can even begin to comprehend what that will really be like. And I think only when we experience it will we understand. Hopefully we get to experience it. But I think it's so amazing to think of our loving Heavenly Father wanting as much joy and fulfillment and growth and progression as he has. Just like when we have our children, we want for them to reach their unlimited potential. I think that God feels the same about us. And unlimited potential is something that we really can't understand right now. So I'm excited for hopefully when I get to the point, if I can endure to the end and keep the commandments and keep on the right path and and really rely on the Savior, I hope I get to understand that someday. Isn't it so amazing? that we were born here on earth ready to progress. Our parents watched us and we watch our children reach milestones. The first time a baby rolls over, the first babbles of speech, sitting up, smiling, laughing. These are things that we take joy in as we watch our children grow. That physical earthly progression mirrors our spiritual progression. Our spiritual progression is far more important than these physical milestones And in fact, we know that some of the most special spirits sent to earth with disabilities don't reach all of those physical milestones. Our spiritual progression and milestones have no physical limitations. Our spiritual progression are the milestones that our Father in Heaven is watching for. That is what He takes joy in as He watches us grow into what He made us to become. And part of becoming like Him requires the use of agency. Agency is clearly not a step that could be skipped over in our journey toward becoming more like him. And unfortunately, that means that everyone won't choose to reach their full potential, which is to be a joint heir with Christ. But as we learned last week, there is never a point within the reach of our judgment that we can decide that hope is lost for anyone. He has the most perfect plan possible for every single person in your life. It's not coercion. It must be agency. And your only job is to be there to be a part of whatever plan he has for them. And for you, Hope is not lost for you either. He has the most perfect plan possible for your progression just for you. But it will not be coercion. You must use your agency to choose him. All right, the next vision touches on the terrestrial world. 
Bruce R. McConkie summarized it nicely when he said, Those destined to inherit the terrestrial kingdom are, one, those who died without law, those heathen and pagan people who did not hear the gospel in this life, and who would not accept it with all of their heart should they hear it. Number two, those who hear and reject the gospel in this life and then accept it in the spirit world. Number three, those who are honorable men of the earth who are blinded by the craftiness of men. Number four, those who are lukewarm members of the true church and who have testimonies but are not true and faithful in all things. Now, after reading that, I know the main question in my mind is, am I a lukewarm member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? We are all certainly imperfect. We've talked a lot about this. I think the most important factor in that question is your trajectory. Are you truly improving, repenting, and is your heart in the right place? If you can answer those questions affirmatively, I think you're doing pretty good. Sometimes I think that we hesitate to feel good about where we are at spiritually because of our imperfection. I think Moroni showed us perfectly the kind of peace of mind that's available to us if we use our agency wisely. The last verse of the Book of Mormon, Moroni says, And now I bid unto all farewell. I soon go to rest in the paradise of God until my spirit and body shall again reunite, and I am brought forth triumphant through the air to meet you before the pleasing bar of the great Jehovah, the eternal judge of both quick and dead. Amen. Moroni knew where he was going. He also knew that he relied completely and wholly upon the Savior to be perfected in him. He called his meeting of the great Jehovah triumphant and pleasing. Through fully embracing the very personal power of the atonement, we can look forward to meeting our Savior without anxiety or fear. I fully believe we can feel the same excitement and confidence that Moroni felt about meeting the Savior. All right, Joseph and Sidney then saw a vision of the Telestial Kingdom. It's interesting to note that the Celestial Kingdom is the only one that talks about how many people they saw. And lo, we saw the glory and the inhabitants of the telestial world, that they were as innumerable as the stars of the firmament of heaven, or as the sands upon the seashore. So when I read that, I think, does that imply that this is the most populated kingdom? It kind of seems like that to me, because they emphasize that, but I'm not really sure. So if anyone has a quote on that, I would be very interested. So who are those who inherit the telestial kingdom? They received not the gospel of Jesus Christ, neither the testimony of Jesus. They denied not the Holy Spirit. These are they who are thrust down to hell. Receive not his fullness, but receive the Holy Spirit. These are they who are liars, sorcerers, adulterers, whoremongers. These are they who suffer the wrath of God on earth. One of the most interesting verses in, the, in this entire section to me is verse 89. It says, And thus we saw in the heavenly vision the glory of the telestial, which surpasses all understanding. So even the telestial, the kingdom reserved for all of the liars and adulterers, its glory surpasses all understanding, the telestial kingdom. Phrases like this is said a few times in this section. So starting in verse 114, But great and marvelous are the works of the Lord and the mysteries of his kingdom, which he has showed unto us, which surpass all understanding in glory and in might and in dominion which he commanded us that we should not write while we are yet in the spirit and are not lawful for man to utter. Neither is man capable to make them known, for they are only to be seen and understood by the power of the spirit, which God bestows upon those who love him and purify themselves before him, to whom he grants this privilege of seeing and knowing for themselves, that through the power and manifestation of the spirit while in the flesh, they may be able to bear his presence in the world of glory. 
Joseph Smith said, Could you gaze into heaven five minutes, you would know more than you would by reading all that was ever written on the subject. It is not even possible for anyone to describe adequately the glory of the things spoken of in this section. They must be seen and understood by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because of the indescribable nature of this subject, I don't even know what else to say about it. The only thing that really comes to mind is that there is nothing I want more than to be given the gift of what is spoken here. He grants this privilege of seeing and understanding these things, which surpass all understanding in glory and in might and in dominion to those who love him and purify themselves before him. One final thought in reference to all three kingdoms of glory. I noticed a different way to think about the kingdoms than I've ever really thought about before. The celestial kingdom is for those who fully accept the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The terrestrial kingdom is for those who receive not the fullness of the Father, but accept the Son and the Holy Ghost. And the telestial kingdom are for those who reject the Father and the Son, but deny not the Holy Ghost. So just kind of an interesting thing to think about. In conclusion, let's go back to the beginning of this vision and the testimony given of our Father in heaven and the Savior. Verse 22. And now, after the many testimonies which have been given of him, this is the testimony, last of all, which we give of him, that he lives. For we saw him even on the right hand of God, and we heard the voice bearing record that he is the only begotten of the Father, that by him and through him and of him the worlds are and were created, and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters unto God. Will all of this be worth it? How is it possible to trust him enough for the possibility of that peace we spoke about at the beginning to be a reality in our lives? I do know that it will be worth it. I don't understand all things. I can't comprehend the amazing things described in this section. But I know that everything we go through in this life will be for our good, even though we might not be able to see it right now, even though it might seem unfair. I know in the midst of those trials, that it can get difficult to trust that everything will be made right. But I do know that it's possible and that that peace of mind is attainable. And the reason that I know this is because of a phrase in this section that actually has rare scriptural punctuation and exclamation mark, that he lives. And because he lives, all of this perfect, incredible, indescribable, unimaginable plan of happiness, of creation and growth is not only possible, but eventually will be absolutely undeniably true and real to every person who has ever lived. If we endure and we overcome, we will get to experience the incredible promise given to us in verse 94. And they see as they are seen, and they know as they are known, having received the fullness of his grace. The implications of that promise are incredible for your future, but also so comforting right now. Listen to that phrase, see as they are seen. Right now, you are seen perfectly, known as you are known. Right now, you are known perfectly. He knew you before you were born. He sees you and knows perfectly every hard thing in your life. And unimaginably, he knows and sees your potential and who you can become and the joy you can experience. And someday, we all have the potential to see and know as perfectly as we are seen and known now. I promise you, he sees you and knows you in this very moment. And even though the person he sees and knows is imperfect, he loves and believes in you. 
so much so that he provided a perfect plan so that your weaknesses can be made strong and your wrongs can be made right. His purpose is to bring about the immortality and eternal life of man. Verse 2. Great is his wisdom, marvelous are his ways, and the extent of his doings none can find out. His purposes fail not, neither are there any who can stay his hand. For thus saith the Lord, I the Lord am merciful and gracious unto those who fear me, and delight to honor those who serve me in righteousness and in truth unto the end. Great shall be their reward, and eternal shall be their glory. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.